Dr. Schreiner is the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Professor of Biblical Theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I believe this is Louisville, it's hard to, Louisville, it's very, very, I know it's not that one, Louisville, something to that effect. <clears throat> when I wade through the complexities of Galatians and trying to figure out what, what a particular phrase means or word means, I reach first for his uh, commentary in the Zondervan series, and I, I, I greatly appreciate his work both in Galatians and Romans and Paul in general. Uh, Dr. Schreiner is careful in his exegesis. This is what we try to instill to our students, to be careful exegetes, to be insightful. He models that greatly. And, and in addition to that, you have an eye for the church, and you write for the church. And that's what we're trying to do as well, to preach for the church. In short, he is the consummate expression of what it means to be a New Testament scholar. And we appreciate that. Uh, your latest book it's on the commentaries in the book of Hebrews in the new Broadman and Holman series, Biblical Theology for Christian Proclamation. Just came out a couple weeks ago, I believe. So Dr. Schreiner, come and help us understand this book of Hebrews and unearth treasure that's contained herein. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ben. It's a, it's a delight to be here, to be on this campus. Really my first time in Mississippi as well, so I'm, I'm just uh, thrilled to, to be here. I, I'm really taking these lectures out of uh, material in my commentary, and my first one is on biblical and theological structures. So I want to begin by touching on some of those structural themes that undergird the theology of Hebrews. The, the, the structures overlap. They're, they're not completely discrete uh, from one another, but I, but I think it's helpful for the sake of clarity, to look at the theology of Hebrews from a number of different angles. And, and I actually saw uh, four st structures here, promise and fulfillment, the already not yet, and then uh, typology, and then uh, spatial structures. I think, g given the time, I, I don't think I'm going to do the already not yet. Uh, if I have time, I'll come back to it. But so we're just touching on these briefly. This is sort of an overarching lecture looking at the structures. I define promise, so first, promise and fulfillment. I define promise and fulfillment to refer to predictions or promises in the Old Testament, which according to Hebrews are now fulfilled. And, and of course we see that, don't we, in the very first verses of the book. God has spoken in a variety of modes in the Old Testament, but he has spoken definitively and finally in his son. So the author from the outset communicates that Old Testament revelation, which was diverse and incomplete, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The entirety of the Old Testament should be read in light of the fulfillment in Jesus. Systematically, this verse is often used, and I think rightly, to, to argue that there's no further revelation until, until the second coming of Jesus. We have the definitive and final word in Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. When we think of promise and fulfillment in Hebrews, the favorite scripture for the author, the favorite passage, you could probably all tell me, is clearly Psalm 110. Verse 1 says, 
The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. According to Hebrews, this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He alludes to or quotes this prophecy five different times. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 13. 8, 1. 10, 12, and 13. And 12, 2. The citation of Psalm 110 confirms that Jesus is the Davidic Son and Lord through whom the kingdom will be established. He, he quotes Psalm 110.1 and directly applies it to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 13. But he alludes to this prophecy at the outset of the book, in that beautiful introduction, declaring that Jesus, this is verse 3, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When I teach Hebrews, I say to my students, in some ways, in some ways, the whole of Hebrews is encapsulated in that verse. In some ways, he could have stopped right there. The rest of the book just unpacks that verse. The complete purification of sins has been accomplished. So why would they go back to the Levitical sacrifices? Interestingly, chapter 8, verse 1 says, the main point of the book is that Jesus, as high priest, has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heavens, in the heavens. Jesus sitting at God's right hand is tied to his accomplishing final atonement for believers in chapter 10, verse 12, so that now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool, verse 13. And in chapter 12, verse 2, where we see the perseverance theme, I'll talk about that in my third lecture tomorrow morning, in chapter 12, verse 2, we run the race looking to Jesus, who is now sat down at the right hand of God. Of course, Psalm 110 is also fulfilled in another way, isn't it? In verse 4. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard here. The verse reads, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. So in Psalm 110, the one who is David's Lord is also an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. Just as Adam was a priest king in the garden, Jesus is also a priest king, the one greater than Adam. The Old Testament clearly teaches that God's kingdom promised in the Old Testament would be realized through a Davidic king. Hebrews appropriates this theme and sees it as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When the author says that the son is heir of all things, chapter 1, verse 2, he is drawing on a promise given to the anointed king of Israel in Psalm 2, verse 8. A few verses later, Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 2, 7, which confirms that the writer identifies the son and king of the psalm to be Jesus himself. In identifying Jesus as God's son and saying that he was begotten, the author isn't teaching the eternal generation of the son. He clearly believes in the son's full deity. But the word begotten here is a metaphor of the son's exaltation. And thus the point here is that the son was begotten at the resurrection. He was exalted to God's right hand as Lord of the world in fulfillment of the promise given to David. 
The fulfillment of the new covenant stands out in Hebrews as well. The author quotes Jeremiah 31 and 31 and following twice in both chapter 8 and chapter 10, as you know. It's at the very heart of his argument. The old covenant failed because Israel didn't keep the covenant stipulations, and hence the nation was thrust into exile. The Lord promised, however, that he would make a new arrangement, a new covenant with his people. He would implant the law within them so they could actually do what the Lord commanded. Furthermore, he would forgive the sins of his people. Interestingly, Hebrews doesn't emphasize the ability to do what the law commands when the, new, when the new covenant is cited. Instead, what the author focuses on, I don't think he denies the other point, but what he focuses on is that sins are finally and definitively and completely forgiven. If the covenant is new, it follows that the old covenant is obsolete. Chapter 8, verse 13. Incidentally, I just had a conversation last week in my office with a person who came from a church where basically that church is trying to follow the whole Old Testament law. I think the author of Hebrews would scratch his head at that idea where a church would try to keep the stipulations of an obsolete covenant. Obviously, all these things I'm touching on right, could raise a lot of questions. We, we have a question time. Let's think about the old covenant further. God would not make a new covenant if the old one were adequate. So the new covenant is a better covenant. That's one of the author's favorite words, better. The new covenant has a better hope, 719. Better promises, 86. Better sacrifices, 923. Since Jesus' blood says better things than the blood of Abel, 1224. The new covenant shows that believers should no longer live under the old, for the old is inferior and ineffectual. The inadequacy of the old comes to center stage when the author considers forgiveness. What makes the New Testament superior is that sins are forgiven definitively and fully and forever in the sacrifice of Jesus. <clears throat> it, doesn't make much, it doesn't make sense to revert to Old Testament sacrifices since the repetition of such sacrifices illustrates their inability to cleanse the conscience from sin. Hebrews especially emphasizes that our consciences are clean because of Jesus' sacrifice, so we can come boldly and without fear into God's presence. When we are plagued with guilt because of our sins, Hebrews reminds us that our consciences are fully cleansed by Jesus' blood. The new covenant isn't just a renewed covenant. It is a better covenant and a new covenant. For unlike the old covenant, everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. In contrast to the old covenant, all believers have free access to God. When such access was limited to the high priest on the day of atonement under the old covenant. Finally, in the new covenant, we are sanctified once for all through Jesus' sacrifice. So I'm skipping the already not yet because of time, but I want to say something about typology, <clears throat> which is a little bit longer. Typology is fundamental to understanding the scriptures. I would suggest that those who reject typology can't understand the whole counsel of God and will have a difficult time preaching 
and teaching the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Another way of putting the same point is this. Without typology, it is difficult to see how the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus Christ and are fulfilled in him. What is typology? Typology exists when there is a historical correspondence between events, institutions, and persons found in the Old Testament. Typology does not merely represent correspondence. All of these things are disputed, by the way, that I'm talking about, but I'm not interacting with others. I'm just telling you what I think. (laughs) Typology does not merely represent correspondence, but a correspondence intended by God. In other words, there is a prophetic character to biblical typology. Typology is not merely retrospective, but prospective. It is not merely the case that the author of Hebrews detects patterns and correspondences as he reflects on Old Testament revelation. Since God is sovereign over all of history, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, for example, he plans the end from the beginning. Hence, the events, institutions, and persons in which there is a typological relationship are not merely accidents of history, nor are they simply employed by God as helpful illustrations. On the contrary, the persons, events, and institutions were intended from the beginning as anticipations of what was to come. Another element of biblical typology should be mentioned at the outset, and this feature is clearly present in Hebrews. Biblical typology is characterized by escalation. This means that the fulfillment is always greater than the type. Indeed, this element of typology is absolutely crucial for Hebrews, for it is inconceivable that the readers would turn back to the type now that, now that what God has, has promised has become a reality, for the fulfillment is far superior to the type. Escalation in typology fits with the main purpose of the letter. How can the readers turn away from Jesus Christ when his person and work are far superior to what was adumbrated in Old Testament persons and institutions? The Old Testament itself points to a better priest, a better king, a better covenant, a better land, and better promises. Hence, the notion of escalation is not arbitrary or foisted upon the text, but is intrinsic to the Old Testament witness. Typology in Hebrews centers on Jesus Christ. Ultimately, all the types in the Old Testament point to and climax in him. We see this again from the inception of the letter in the first two verses. Finally and supremely, God has spoken in his son. He is the greatest and final prophet. The author picks up this theme relative to Moses in chapter 3. Moses is conceived of as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Moses' greatness isn't attributed to his abilities, but to his relationship with God, to his dependence upon God for strength, and thus he is described as humbler than anyone else on earth, Numbers 12.3, which Hebrews picks up. Moses' humility manifests itself in his response to criticism, for he did not take umbrage when censured by Aaron and Miriam. A good word, right, for those in ministry, how he responded to criticism. The title son plays a major role in Hebrews relative to Jesus Christ. But the term is also used typologically. In the Old Testament, Israel was identified as God's son and firstborn, Exodus 4, and 23, Jeremiah 31, 9, showing Israel's special relationship with God. As the Old Testament story progressed, the Davidic king 
is appointed to be God's son and the firstborn. 2 Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 89, verse 27. The promises given to Abraham would become a reality through the covenant enacted with David. As God's son and firstborn, the Lord would rule the world through Israel and the Davidic king. As the Old Testament story progresses, we see that Israel as God's son was sent into exile since they failed to keep the stipulations of the covenant. The Davidic kings followed the same course, First and Second Kings. Or, or we could say what the story of First and Second Kings is, as, as the kings go, so goes the nation. And the kings regularly fail. I mean, even though there's some bright spots, there's clearly a tra trajectory down. So the, the, the kings were appointed representatively to lead the nation in righteousness and justice and truth, but they forsook the Lord and failed to obey his instructions. So God's promise to bless the world through Abraham did not become a reality through these kings. Hebrews, along with the rest of the New Testament, sets forth Jesus as the true Israel and the true Davidic king. He was the son who invariably obeyed never transgressing the will of the Lord, 4.15, 7.26, a prominent theme in Hebrews, right? Jesus is sinless. The New Testament, I, I broaden it out here, the New Testament, but particularly Hebrews, they don't, they don't emphasize, it's interesting to note this, isn't it? They don't emphasize that Jesus obeyed the law, although that's true, but they emphasize that he obeyed the Lord. We aren't surprised to learn this, for Jesus' obedience went far beyond just keeping the law. He was obedient unto death for our sake and for our salvation. That's not required in the law, is it? The Lord promised Israel that his promises to them would be secured through obedience. Genesis 18, 18 and 19, 26, 5, relative to Abraham's obedience, which plays such a central role. And Jesus, as God's son, learned to obey in his suffering, 5, 8. His suffering didn't propel him away from God, as it sometimes does with us, but actually drew him closer to God and qualified him to serve as our great high priest. Israel was tested in the wilderness and sinned repeatedly, but when Jesus was tested, he didn't fall prey to sin, 2.18 and 4.15. And thus he was perfected via his sufferings, 2.10. We see, we see escalation in that Jesus was always the obedient son in contrast to Israel and the Davidic kings. But there is also escalation in another sense. For Jesus is not only a human son, but also the divine son. He is not only the heir like the Davidic king, but also the agent by whom the universe was created, one, two. And is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, one, three. He is a son who is worshipped, one, six and is identified as God, showing that the Son shares in the divine identity. <clears throat> the use of Psalm 45 in 1, 8, and 9 is most interesting, for the psalm is originally a royal psalm about the Davidic king. It is a wedding song, celebrating the king's majesty and greatness. When the king is identified as God in the psalm, Psalm 45, 6, we have an example, yeah, I think of these Old Testament scholars out here, as I said, I'm just saying my opinion. So, when the king is identified as God in the psalm, we have an example of hyperbole in the historical context of the psalm. The king, compare Moses being called God in Exodus 7.1, is identified as God in the psalm, given his stature and rule. As God's vice regent, he is called God. But no one in Israel interpreted the wording literally 
as if the Davidic king were actually divine. But what is said about the Davidic king in that psalm was no accident, for it pointed forward in a deeper and truer sense to Jesus Christ. For this one truly is the Son of God, the one whom angels worship and who created the universe, 1, 2, 6, 10, and 12. We see a prime example of escalation in typology here. The sun typology is exploited in still another direction. In Psalm two, the author, in, in Hebrews 2, the author cites Psalm 8, which is a creation psalm, celebrating the dignity of human beings. Even though human beings seem to be insignificant, God made them to rule the world as his vice regents, back to Genesis 1. Psalm 8 celebrates the majesty of God and the dignity of human beings created in his image. Hebrews, however, reads the psalm eschatologically and typologically, recognizing that human beings didn't realize their potential. Human beings didn't rule the world for God. Instead, they sinned against the Lord, plunging the world into chaos so that death reigned instead of life and joy. Death and sin prevented human beings from reaching their intended goal. The creation of human beings anticipates and points to the one human being, Jesus Christ, who is faithful to God, the one who succeeded where everyone else failed. Because of his obedience, the world will be subjected to him, 2.5, even though that reality has not yet been realized fully, 2.8. The original plan that human beings would rule the world for God is realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus functions as the representative human being, helping those who can't help themselves, 2.18. His help consists supremely in his priestly work of offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross by which he atoned for the sins committed against God, 2.17. Jesus' victory over sin and death is shared with all who are his brothers, 2.11 and 12, with the children God gave him, 2.13, with Abraham's offspring, 2.16. I just want to mention this quickly. I wrote, I wrote an essay on definite atonement where I exploited these themes because, you know, 2.9 says he tasted death for everyone. But I think the references here indicate the everyone or the children God gave him, the offspring of Abraham and so forth, because 2.9 is often brought up as an objection against definite atonement. But I, but I actually think in context, uh, it, it, it points in just the opposite direction. And it's so fascinating, isn't it, that he calls, he doesn't say the children of, of uh, Adam here, but the children of Abraham, that, 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 that the, the believers in Jesus Christ are, are Abraham's children. And of course, that's very similar to what we see in Paul. Well, Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus is also typological. Melchizedek was not a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, for Hebrews 7.3 says that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. The wording here suggests that Jesus Christ as high priest was the goal and model of the priesthood from the beginning, and hence Melchizedek points forward to him. This supports the claim made earlier that typology does not just happen to seize upon correspondences between persons, events, and institutions. Typology is perspective, reflecting God's sovereign plan over all of history. When the text says that Melchizedek didn't have a mother or father or genealogy, having no beginning or no end, 7-3, we must beware of over-interpretation. The author isn't asserting that Melchizedek literally didn't have a father or mother, nor is he claiming that he wasn't born or that he didn't die. 
If Melchizedek didn't have a father or mother, he wouldn't even be a human being. Melchizedek is contrasted with Levitical priests here, for the genealogy of the latter is carefully traced. And if genealogical connections can't be proven, they can't serve as priests. And, and we see that, right, both in Nehemiah and, and Ezra, if you can't prove that genealogical connection. It's quite remarkable, then, that Melchizedek served as a priest, though Genesis says nothing about his genealogy. The silence about Melchizedek's ancestry and birth and death is significant typologically, for it demonstrates that his priesthood is of a different character than the Aaronic priesthood. Certainly the language used here is not literally true of Jesus at every point, for he did have a mother. The author contends that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical and thereby establishes typologically that Jesus' priesthood is greater as well. Jesus cannot be a Levitical priest because he hails from, a, from the tribe of Judah, 7, 13, and 14. We see from Psalm 110 that the Melchizedekian priesthood is fulfilled in the Davidic king so that the priesthood finds its ultimate fulfillment in the kingly office. Melchizedek's priesthood, according to Psalm 110.4, remains forever, cited in 7.17. Certainly, this wasn't literally true of Melchizedek, for he was dead and gone after his life ended. We see typological escalation here, for the word forever is literally true in Jesus' case, for he has an indestructible life, 7.16. Jesus' priesthood never ends since he conquered death forever at his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is foundational to the superiority of his priesthood since the tenure of Levitical priests ends at death, whereas Jesus is a permanent and effective priest since he remains forever, 724 and 25. The author doesn't feel restricted or bound in considering the typological significance of Jesus. There is a sense in which the Levitical priests are types of Jesus as well. We see from 5, 1 through 10 that the Levitical priesthood is the typological framework which anticipates Jesus' priesthood. Jesus, like the Levit Levitical priest, was a human being and was appointed by God to his office. But what is emphasized here is actually the discontinuity between the, the two. The Levitical priests are restricted to an earthly ministry, the earthly priests are a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, 8.5. Moses himself signaled that the tabernacle pointed to a greater and more perfect tabernacle. For God instructed him to make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain, 8.5, Exodus 25.40. The earthly priests point forward to a better priest, a heavenly one. Earthly priests stand because their work is never finished. 10.11, but Christ sits because his sacrifice does not need to be repeated. 10.12-14, for final forgiveness has been accomplished. The author picks up on the typological significance of the tabernacle and the sacrifices in 9.1-10. through 10. The regulations for sacrifices are instructive, for the high priest was permitted to enter the most holy place only once a year on the Day of Atonement. 9.7, and of course Leviticus chapter 16. The Spirit was revealing that free access to God was lacking, 9.8. Jesus' sacrifice was superior, for he did not enter an earthly tabernacle, but a heavenly one, securing access to God's presence continually and forever. 
The animal sacrifices were a type of Jesus' greater sacrifice, and we clearly have an example of escalation since Jesus' sacrifice tore open the curtain in the temple tabernacle, separating human beings from God so that believers have constant access to God's presence. The physical washings and sacrifices of the Old Testament, 9, 10, and 13, anticipate a greater washing and cleansing, one that is effectual. The external washings, after all, only cleanse the body, 9, 13. But Jesus' blood sprinkles the conscience clean of sin and washes the body with water so that the whole person is truly cleansed, 9, 14, 10, 22. There is also a typological relationship in terms of covenantal practice. The old covenant was ratified by the blood of animals, signifying that forgiveness only comes with the spilling of blood with the death of sacrificial victims. The typological connection is clear. The blood of animal sacrifices point forward to a greater and more effective sacrifice, to the blood of Jesus, which is a better sacrifice, 9, 23, and 24. Since it brings <clears throat> access to God, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice secured forgiveness of sins forever. The law and the sacrifices therein are shadows, pointing to a greater reality, 10.1, to a greater sacrifice. Animal sacrifices direct us to the sacrifice of Christ, 10.2 through 10. For it is obvious that the blood of animals can't atone for sin. True atonement can only be secured by a human being, not by brute animals who are offered unwillingly and without any consciousness of what is going on. Christ, on the other hand, gave himself personally and gladly for the sake of his people. Animal sacrifices simply remind people of their sins year after year. The sacrifice of Christ, on the other hand, sanctifies once for all. The food offered at Jesus' altar, the cross, is better than the food of Old Testament sacrifices, 13, 9, and 10. For the former brings grace, while the latter is an external practice which points forward to a better sacrifice and a better altar. Typology also plays an important role in the warning passages in the letter. We see again here the prospective nature of typology and escalation. For instance, under the Old Covenant, those who transgressed covenant stipulations received a just punishment on earth, 2-2. The punishment could be death for sins like adultery or homosexuality, Leviticus 20.10. Or Israel experienced covenant curses for departing from the Lord, Deuteronomy 28. They were banished and sent into exile for their failure to abide by the covenant. Such earthly punishments, however, anticipated the final judgment, which would be experienced by those who drifted away from the salvation given by the Lord, 2.3. In this case, in Hebrews, the punishment is es escalated, for the readers are threatened with the eschatological wrath of God. The same pattern of argumentation surfaces in 1026 through 31. Those who violate the Mosaic law die without mercy. Such an earthly punishment forecasts a future and greater punishment if one tramples God's son under his feet, considers the blood of the covenant unclean, and insults the Holy Spirit. The judgment in this case is more terrifying than physical death. For those who reject the Son will fall into the hands of the living God. 10.31. The warning in 12.25-29 through 29 runs along similar lines. Israel didn't escape judgment when God warned them on earth. 
And so it is even more the case that those who ignore a heavenly word will not be spared the judgment of God. We see the same paradigm in 3, 7 through 4, 13. The wilderness generation didn't obtain rest in Canaan since they refused to obey the Lord's will. The unbelief and disobedience of the wilderness generation functions as an example to avoid for believers in Jesus Christ. Parenthetically, but along the same lines, Esau also functions as a type in the same way as the wilderness generation. Esau surrendered an earthly birthright, but believers are admonished not to throw away their eternal birthright for temporal joys, 12, 16, and 17. When we consider the wilderness generation, the rest promised in Canaan was an earthly rest, but there is a better rest, a heavenly rest available for believers in Jesus Christ, 4.1. The rest theme is complex and variegated, for it doesn't only relate to the promise that Israel would inherit Canaan, the author also hearkens back to creation, where God rested from all his works on the seventh day. God's rest on the seventh day when he completed his creation work, has an anticipatory element to it. God rested because his work was completed, and hence his Sabbath rest points to and anticipates the new creation to come. When God's kingdom is realized in its fullness, those who belong to God will enjoy Sabbath rest, for then human beings will cease from their labor and work, 4.10. The rest God enjoyed upon completing his work at creation anticipates the rest which will come when the new creation dawns. I'm just looking at the clock here, and I think I'm going to leave the rest of that section. I'll talk about some of these other things later. I'm just going to have a concluding paragraph and then say something about spatial themes. The brief foray, this brief foray into typology demonstrates that typology plays a significant role in Hebrews. The author often sees a typological connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he regularly sees escalation between the type and its fulfillment. I'm allergic to tree pollen, by the way, and your trees are a little more advanced than ours. That's what's happening, I think. The escalation, yeah. Hopefully not the final judgment, but anyway. Some scholars place the spatial orientation of Hebrews under the subject of typology or eschatology. Creating a distinct section is useful, however, since typology is characteristic of many of the books in the New Testament, whereas the author's spatial emphasis is distinctive. Hebrews quite frequently contrasts the earthly and the heavenly, so we have a vertical or spatial contrast. Hence, the author, in accord with the Old Testament, works with a two-story model of the created cosmos, heaven and earth, compare Genesis 1.1. It also seems that the author distinguishes between the sky, the visible heavens, and heaven as God's dwelling place. Such a distinction is borne out since Jesus passed through the heavens, 4.14, is exalted above the heavens, 7.26, and has entered heaven itself, 9.24. The last phrase refers to the very presence of God. The nature of the heavens described here can't be described adequately, for God's dwelling place is mysterious and beyond human access. We need to acknowledge here the symbolic character of the language found in Hebrews. Discerning where the language is symbolic is, of course, difficult. For instance, Christ truly has a resurrection body. The author doesn't engage in symbolism here. 
The language about a heavenly tent and a city, however, should not be pressed to say that there is a literal, literal tent or a literal heavenly city. Here I'm dissenting from David Moffat's recent work on Hebrews, which has made, if you're familiar with it, such a splash in Hebrew scholarship recently. Spatial imagery may be appropriated to express the inexpressible, to convey in symbolic language a reality which transcends our understanding. Hence, the reference to God's throne in the heavens points uh, the readers to God's transcendence, but doesn't necessarily mean there's a literal throne up there. Some in the history of interpretation have interpreted the writer's contrast between the earthly and heavenly sanctuary in platonic terms, for what is heavenly is superior to what is earthly. The notion sounds platonic at first glance, as if the earthly is a pale replica of the perfect archetype which is in heaven. Furthermore, what the author says could be understood as critical of the physical creation, as if the author longs for a transcendent world that is not defiled by material reality. Certainly the language used is reminiscent in some respects to what we find in Plato or Philo. Still, the worldview is dramatically different, and most scholars now agree that the writer is not, was not appropriating platonic notions in any technical sense, and hence he is ultimately world-affirming instead of world-denying. Most significantly, the language of heaven and earth is plotted on an eschatological timeline, the eschatological and spatial are complementary, and we have no such conception in Plato. According to the author, the heavenly realm is superior to the earthly. Jesus' priesthood, in contrast to the Levitical priesthood, is not earthly but heavenly, and therefore Jesus' priesthood is infinitely more valuable than the ministry conducted by the Levitical priests. The importance of heaven is also evident in another passage, for the message conveyed from heaven from Mount Zion represents God's final and definitive word, 1, 2, 12, 25. The author doesn't reject the word given through Moses and the prophets, but the heavenly message is the consummation and completion and fulfillment of what God has revealed. Hence, those who reject such a heavenly message will face severe judgment if they renounce the word proclaimed to them. Believers have a heavenly calling, 3.1, and Jesus has passed through the heavens, 4.14, entering God's very presence as high priest. The earthly tabernacle, which was established by Moses, is contrasted with the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, 8.2. The author is clearly saying that the heavenly is superior to the earthly. Similarly, the earthly priests who offer sacrifices according to the law are contrasted with Jesus, who is a heavenly priest, 8.3 and 4. Earthly priests, then, are a copy and shadow of heavenly things, 8.5. Since the earthly reflects the heavenly, when Moses constructed the tabernacle, he did so according to the pattern specified by God, 8.5, Exodus 25.40. The earthly is, again, inferior. But the argument isn't that it is inferior because it comes from the material world. Its inferiority is linked to eschatology. For the superiority of Christ's priesthood is tied to the inauguration of the new covenant in his ministry, 8, 7 through 13. The earthly tabernacle points to a greater and more perfect tabernacle in heaven, 9, 11. A tabernacle which is not of this creation. The author, contrary to David Moffat, again, isn't claiming that there is a literal tabernacle or place in heaven. He simply uses the language of tabernacle to communicate the truth that the earthly tabernacle symbolizes God's presence in heaven. 
And speaking of a heavenly sanctuary, the language is analogical instead of univocal. So I think that's an important distinction. It's analogical instead of univocal. Jesus' sacrifice is better than animal sacrifices, for he entered the very presence of God and cleansed the conscience. The copies, 923, of what is in heaven were purified with the sacrifices of animals, but the heavenly things, 923, needed better sacrifices. Again, when the author speaks of heavenly things, it is a mistake to conclude that there are real heavenly things that are defiled, which need cleansing. Depends on what you mean by real there, right? The author teaches that the blood of animals could not avail in heaven in the very presence of God. Since the earthly sanctuary is a model of the true one, antetupaton aletheonon, um, 924, Jesus could not content himself with entering such a sanctuary. He entered a better sanctuary, a heavenly one, which is again analogical language, to appear in the presence of God for us. The law on earth is a shadow, skia, of the heavenly world, world which is the actual form, icon, of things, 10.9. Similarly, Mount Sinai was terrifying when God came down on it rocking with thunder and blazing with lightning so that those present were awe-stricken. But believers have come to a better mountain, Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is a heavenly mountain where the living God resides. Indeed, it is nothing other than the heavenly Jerusalem. It follows then that no one will escape if they turn away from a message given from heaven. For even those who rejected the message from Sinai received an earthly punishment." I'm going ahead a little bit here. No, no, I think I can finish this. It's just a little bit more. God will shake the created world so that created things are removed, 12, 26, and 27. And only the kingdom remains, 12, 28. Hence, the author departs from Plato, for in contrast to the latter, he does not believe this world is eternal. In citing Psalm 102 in chapter 1, the transience and impermanence of the present world is understood. But Adams, <clears throat> Adams has written on the cosmology of Hebrews, I think very helpfully. Adams right, <clears throat> right, rightly remarks that the temporary character of the world does not mean that the author of Hebrews believes the physical world is intrinsically evil. You've been very patient, thank you. One more paragraph. Scholars debate whether the writer of Hebrews believes in a new creation or whether he thinks the heavenly realm is non-material. Adams rightly argues that it is more convincing to say that the author looks forward to a new creation. As John Lonsma says, creation has not been removed, but rather cleansed, 1-3, and reconstituted as God's temple, city, fatherland, world, and kingdom, unquote. The son will be heir of all things, which implies that in the eschaton there will be a cosmos for him to inherit. Furthermore, in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, the author cites Psalm 8, where he predicts that Jesus will fulfill the destiny for human beings recorded in the psalm. But this destiny, according to Psalm 8, involves rule over the world, indicating that Jesus will rule over a physical cosmos. Indeed, Jesus will reign over the coming world. The term world, oikumene, in 2, 5, designates the inhabited earth, signifying that the coming city designates a renewed cosmos. 
Such a view fits with Revelation 21 and 22, where the heavenly city also describes the new creation. Thank you so much for your patience.